What a uh, beautiful lyrics that song has. Um, it's more than just a song with nice lyrics, though. Uh, it is scriptural principles about how we ought to serve one another, how we ought to care for and love one another. Um, it might be easy to say. It was slightly less easy to sing, just the, the way the music was at first. I was trying to wrap my head around it. But it's much more difficult to do, to actually, in the moments when someone is mourning, to, to really mourn with them instead of, you know, standing aloof awkwardly. Or um, when, uh, when, when they're laughing, and you might not feel like laughing, to laugh. But we, we praise God for um, scriptural encouragements. Indeed, the scriptures tell us to sing and to thereby teach one another. Uh, we instruct one another in our songs. And so I hope that you found that, uh, as well as all of the songs, um, instructive in some way. Well, this morning we're going to be beginning a new series, not uh, quite as long as our series from Zechariah, just for Sundays. Uh, and we're going to be asking, what is the deal with deacons? Uh, not least because at a recent church members meeting, we appointed deacons, we elected deacons, and we will be formally recognizing them at the end of this month. The last Sunday of June, we will present these um, uh, de uh, deacons and deaconesses elect before the church. We will um, uh, ask them questions, we will lay hands on them, we will commit them to the Lord, and we will uh, seek to... Um, support them in that important ministry. Now, we made that decision on the foundation of prior teaching as members of the church. And, and yet it is, I think, good as we lead to that, that day of their formal recognition that we spend some time thinking again biblically about what deacons are, what deacons do, where deacons come from, and uh, just, yeah, in general, what's the deal with deacons? Why do we have them? What's their purpose? And I hope that this will be instructive for all of us, but especially... Um, I, I ask those who are deacons, we have one at the moment, he is um, isolating due to a hospital appointment. Uh, Michael, if you're watching, you better be uh, right now. Um, uh, please be listening closely. And uh, the rest of you lot, uh, be paying attention as well because um, uh, the, the day of reckoning is coming uh, at the end of the, the month. Well, we will um, be in Acts chapter 6 this morning, and we're going to be in various passages over the next four weeks. This morning, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, we'll be thinking about roots, where deacons come from. Uh, then uh, next week, we're going to be um, looking at some representatives of deacons, and we'll be in a couple of places in Acts and Romans. And then uh, we're going to, three weeks from now, 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, we're going to be looking at qualifications or, or requirements, and then uh, we'll conclude that last Sunday of the month, 1 Timothy 3.13, looking at the reward of deacons. So roots, representatives, requirements, and rewards. This morning, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Let's read. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. 
These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you this morning that you would guide us, that you would lead us in all understanding as we seek to reflect Christ's design for the church. We pray that, that we would get this right, that we would understand how we ought to be structured as a church and to what end. We pray that you would help us in this. We trust in Christ, we look to Christ, and we do so because we realize how unlike Christ we still are. So we pray that you would shape and fashion us in your likeness. Amen. When the early church was, um, was, was gathered together at the very beginning, they did not have deacons. We do not see anything from the Lord Jesus Himself about deacons. We have only one passage of Scripture which actually gives qualifications for deacons. Uh, it is not essential. Hear me carefully and not what, what I'm saying and not what I'm not saying. It is not essential to have deacons to be a church. But any healthy church will eventually, at some point, recognize and appoint deacons. And hopefully we'll understand that today and over the coming weeks. The narrative before us, and it is a narrative, it's, it's, it's not teaching as such, it's not necessarily normative, but the narrative before us presents compelling reasons why having deacons is good, right, and helpful. The context is set very clearly. Now in these days, in what days? In these days when the disciples were increasing in number. The church is growing. And to say it's growing is something of an understatement. How many followers, close followers, did Jesus have? Let's make sure everyone's awake this morning. Close followers. Twelve. How many did He have after the crucifixion? Oh, that was very precise. Did someone say none? Okay, right. Eleven is what I was looking for. They, they repented. Don't have to overthink things. After he was crucified, I should have said after he was risen. I, I guess you've learned that I'm very precise to the point of um, pedantic. After his resurrection, there were 11. Yeah? Judas did not repent. Uh, Judas and Peter are, are total opposites. Both of them horribly sinned against Jesus. Peter, for example, denied Jesus, ever knowing Him, not speaking up at all in the face of... And, and yeah, that was part of God's plan, but it was on Him, the responsibility. He was not speaking up at all to protect Jesus or to ally Himself with Jesus or anything. He ran, and then He lurked in the shadows, denying He ever knew Christ. But he repented. He came back. Judas did not. Judas, instead of repenting, gave in to, um, to, to remorse, and only remorse. The remorse did not lead him to repentance. He just felt guilty, and he eventually took his own life. So there are 11 men. In Acts chapter 1, we read that the 11, together with the women, including Mary, and Jesus' brothers and sisters were gathered together for prayer. Eleven men, an unidentified number of women in all probability exceeding the number of eleven, as well as Jesus' brothers and sisters gathered to pray. What was the fruit of that prayer meeting? 
Well, it seems, although it's not spelled out entirely, that the fruit of them giving themselves to prayer was growth. Because somewhere between that, that small prayer meeting in an upper room, we have 11 men, some women, and Jesus' half-siblings praying. We end up, by the day of Pentecost, a few days later, with a group of 120. This goes out to those of you who don't value the prayer meeting. You can take the hint. It's 12 o'clock, 7, uh, sorry, not 12 o'clock, Thursday, 7 p.m., and we gather for prayer in person and on Zoom. Growth. Growth of the church is facilitated by the intentional prayers of God's people gathered together. You want to see the church grow and you want to see the church be healthy. Then pray, and don't just pray on your lonesome, but pray together with the body of Christ when they are gathered for that purpose. Prayer precedes growth. That growth is from 11 plus a group of women plus family, and it produces 120 people. All of these 120 had something in common culturally. They were Galileans. They are identified as Galileans on the day of Pentecost. 120 Galileans gathered to pray. Acts 1. Out of their constant gathering for prayer, they are propelled into the city to preach, to proclaim Christ. They're telling people about Jesus, that He is risen from the dead, and He is Lord. And as they preach, they grow. Everyone was preaching in some way. Everyone was proclaiming the gospel of Christ in some way. But there was one man among them who stood up to proclaim Christ authoritatively, and that is the apostle Peter. Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, and he preached. Why, what occasioned his preaching? Well, these 120 Galileans were going throughout the city telling people about Jesus, and as they told people about Jesus, they, people from all around the world were hearing them in their own language. And that was mystifying. They're Galileans. They've not studied linguistics at all. But here they are speaking, and we're hearing them in our languages and in our dialects from all across the Roman Empire. How is that happening? And so Peter stands up and points them to Jesus because this sign was meant for that purpose. It wasn't meant for, for anything really beyond the effective proclamation of Christ. As they spoke, people heard the gospel in their language. And as people heard the gospel in their language, they inquired, and Peter preached, and they still heard the gospel in their language. So we go from 120 people to 3,000 people added that day. So we're up to 3,120. These are not just Galileans. These are Jews from all across the Roman Empire who were gathered there for the festival. They are diaspora Jews and proselytes. That is to say that many of these people had never lived permanently in the Holy Land, in, in Israel, in the land of promise. They, they had lived from birth up across the empire, various places, quite far flung as far as North Africa. They hear the gospel and they believe. Also in their number are some Gentiles who had converted to faith in Christ. They're called proselytes. Proselytes are people who left whatever pagan beliefs they had and believed in the God of Scripture, in Yahweh, in the God of the Bible. And so we have massive growth, not only in numbers, but also in their diversity as people. They are now not only Galileans, they are Jews including Jews who would have been born Gentiles. They are Hebrew-speaking Jews. 
and Greek-speaking Jews, Jews who are characterized more by Hebrew culture, very in touch with their Jewish Hebrew roots, and people who are characterized more by Greek language and culture, less in touch with their ancient Hebrew roots. Are you following me so far? That's Acts chapter 2. We then read Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, and there's more preaching, and there's more praying, and there is more growth. Growth under quite heated persecution at times. We're told that the number of men reached 5,000. So, so that is to say that they, they, they started at 3,120 total, right? But then their growth is such that they begin to lose track of the precise numbers. The number of men, they can't, the total number of men is around 5,000 now. And if we're talking normal ratios, even what we see throughout Scripture, as well as just what we see generally in the world, you're looking at slightly more women than men, as well as more children. You're looking at now in excess of 10,000 people who are gathering for worship in Jerusalem. They're from all over the world. They have different languages. They have different cultural backgrounds. They have different expectations. This is what Luke has in mind in verse 1 of chapter 6 when he says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number. So we have over 10,000 people at this point, over 5,000 or around 5,000 men. There's continuation of prayer. There's practical generosity. Signs and wonders are being performed. And Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5 say, now they've totally lost count, multitudes of both men and women were added to the Lord. That's in addition to the already, in all probability, in excess of 10,000 people that we had at the conclusion of Acts chapter 4. So the church is skyrocketing in number. There's this massive explosion of people who are followers of this Jesus movement. And as they are proclaiming Christ, and as they are praying in Christ's name, they continue to grow. They're persecuted. Violence is inflicted upon them. They are threatened. And yet they endure. Acts chapter 5 concludes, Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. In fact, in the face of their suffering and persecution, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. That's what Luke has in mind when he says, now in these days, the disciples were increasing in number. So I've set the context, but let's, let's move from context to complaint. You have between 10 and 20,000 people in a city, all of whom are new to faith in Jesus Christ, quite suddenly, from many different backgrounds, culturally, linguistically, different languages, different countries, and, and the, the, never mind cultures, but subcultures that they would have represented. And all of that is a part of the church. Something's bound to go wrong. There's a very real sense in which they are figuring things out as they go along. That's often the case with a growing church, especially when the momentum is such that you, you don't really have a lot of time to, to press the brakes and uh, just sit back, take stock, and say, okay, we're going to do things this way, and we're going to do things that way, we're going to sort that out. Suddenly, we just have loads of people believing in Jesus. They're, what we do know is that they're preaching, they're praying, they're gathering, they're taking the Lord's Supper, they're baptizing new believers, bringing them into the, the church. Their numbers keep growing. Fairly simple. They're meeting together, um, uh, large numbers in mass in the temple grounds, which would have 
um, been able to hold such capacity, but they are meeting in the week from house to house. There's a lot that we can learn from that, although it's not normative necessarily. It's, it's a narrative. That's how they did it. It doesn't say you must, you, you, you must structure your church life identically, but why would we want to be less than the early church? Those things, preaching, prayer, baptism and the Lord's Supper, gathering regularly together, those things are taught in Scripture, and we must commit to those whatever else our church life might look like. Do we have house-based small groups through the week? Well, perhaps if we see the type of rapid growth that they have, that's something that we may eventually end up having. At the moment, we have small groups based in other places and in other ways. But as they're growing, eventually the growing pains begin when they slow down a bit and they begin to, to feel keenly some of the, uh, the, the issues that might arise in such a context. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Remember what I said. On the day of Pentecost, people from all over the Roman Empire were there. They spoke different languages. They had different cultures and subcultures. They gra Hellenists gravitated in a Greek direction. Hebrews often regarded the Hellenists as compromised, indeed as corrupt or corrupted in some way. Hellenists were seen as sellouts or as traitors um, uh, to... to true Jewish identity. And so here they are being neglected because they're a bit different. They speak differently. Years in other places means they, they, they might look different, dress differently, have different thought processes, different ways of working through issues. Do we know anything about that just at a small level as a, as a diverse church? Are, are there ever any miscommunications that we have? Someone says something and they mean it humorously and someone takes it and it's not so funny to them. Has that ever happened? It's happened before. I have to get involved sometimes. Someone... someone is speaking, and they know what they're saying, and they know what they mean, and some of those who walk closest with them know what they're saying and what they mean, but someone else doesn't, and is wondering, what's going on here? What are they, what are, what are they on about? Or it could be just linguistic issues. And the grace of God, while well, I've not been given the Pentecost gift of tongues, where I understand people in, their, in my language when they're talking to me, I have an ability to talk to people who speak minimal English and I can make out what they're saying. Multiple people have seen that in various ways. I know where they're coming from. I can talk with them. We can have a relationship. Not everyone has that. And so we struggle because this person has minimal uh, English and this person has maximal English and, and only English and it, it's difficult to communicate perhaps to build the relationship. And so when that person's communicating, this person doesn't understand. What is a danger? Well, I'll, I'll ask you directly. Do you reach out to people who do not speak English as their first language fluently in the church normally. Sometimes you do. Some do, I know. But some do not. Do you talk, do you intentionally seek out people who have limited linguistic abilities in the English language after church to engage them in conversation? Some do but others don't. 
and they keep it brief. Do you see how, before you judge the church at Jerusalem, how we could make the same mistakes? How we could, at a much smaller level, neglect brothers and sisters because we are less attentive to them because we have not, through difficulty, maybe a bit of pain internally, worked to understand, to learn more about them, to find out who they are, where they're from, what they're like, and most importantly, what they need and how they need it. One of my uh, greatest frustrations as a pastor is when members text me about other members asking how they are. Text them yourself. Call them yourself. You welcome them into the membership of the church. Why? If you weren't prepared to take some responsibility. I can tell you how they're doing, but increasingly I refuse to. Because it is important that you build the relationship with your brothers and sisters that meaningfully cares for them. It's vital. Oh, they don't respond to me. Maybe because they don't have a clue who you are. Because you've not talked to them after church or before church. Or you, 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 you haven't labored. And it is difficult but labored to really get to know them so far as you can. We must grow as a church, not simply in number, but in our maturity, in our, in our relational maturity and in our emotional... Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to, when I'm at prayer meeting, to say, let's pray for this person and get blank faces and someone say, who's that? I've heard, I've, that's happened before. Who are you talking about? Someone who's been a member for a long time. Let's not do that. Let's know our brothers and sisters. We don't have upwards to 20,000 people in this church. I don't think you can keep track of that. We, we are in a situation in God's providence where we can build deep relationships here and now and lay a solid foundation for future growth. I'm not saying you're always going to, to be extra tight with everyone in the church. But it would be very nice and biblical if people had close relationships with other people within the church apart from me. Because you all are priests. We talked about that last year. There's recordings online if you've forgotten. You all are priests able to minister to each other. You all are prophets, able to speak the truth to each other. You all are kings in Christ, able to, 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 to exercise some sense of, of authority on the basis of Christ and in Scripture with each other. So let's take that seriously. But still, people say, let's go back to the book of Acts because that's like the, that's like the perfect, that's, that's what we want. That's... That's what we're aiming for. Well, still, you have issues. They were doing things really good, really well, and they still struggled. The Hellenists were being neglected by the Hebrews. Why? Because the leadership was all Hebrew. And they were busy. They were preaching the gospel. So it stands to reason that you have an exclusively Hebrew um, uh, leadership and uh, sort of the nucleus of the church is led by Hebrews, and not only Hebrews, but Galilean Hebrews, and they're, 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 they are the ones that are really driving things and leading things. It, it's, it's not necessarily that they are, in a hateful way, prejudiced against Hellenists, but they're busy preaching. There are other people in the church who do have various prejudices and biases. Or just they're impatient or can't be bothered. Whatever happened, a complaint arose against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. 
Why? Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So you have vulnerable women without their husbands, without care from their children, if they have any children, who find themselves alone and totally dependent upon the care of the church. The leaders are shaping the, the vision of the early church and they're preaching the gospel. They're focused on that. Other people are just sat around, engaged in spiritual stuff, but neglecting the practical things, particularly practical things among those that they don't really understand. They look differently, sound differently, speak differently. That is the complaint. And perhaps you've been there. Perhaps not only have you been the Hebrews in the equation, something that I was talking about a moment ago, but you've been the Hellenists in the equation. You're someone who wishes someone would reach out. You're someone who, 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 who has a need and, look, you express, please express the need. We can't read minds. But maybe you have expressed that need. And the response has been sluggish at best. We can be honest about these things. Before God, we confess that we are not perfect. We confess before God that we have things where we need to grow as a church. It is the sin of pride and self-righteousness that denies that we could be on both sides of this equation at any point of time in our life as a church. Is that making sense? A complaint. But I must move on because it does get better. I mean, it's a bit... It's, are, you are you frustrated with this scenario that's being played out? Does it tire you thinking about how all of this works and these interpersonal things and it's just vexing? Well, hopefully you're feeling exactly what Luke wants you to feel, certainly what I want you to feel, because it ends up in a good place. Third thing to see, clear categories. What do the twelve, because they've replaced Judas with Matthias by this point, the twelve respond to this complaint by summoning the full number of the disciples. That is, in this case, the church. Everyone. The full gathering of the church is held. Imagine that gathering. Over 10,000 people. Somewhere perhaps more headed in the 20,000 direction. They're gathered together and the 12 say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Now someone says, ah, I don't really know how I feel about that. Because they're not taking the complaint of the Hellenists seriously. Au contraire. They summoned the full church. It's not easy coordinating a gathering of over 10,000 people. They summoned the full gathering and they drew up some very clear categories for healthy church life. My sister here has talked about structures before. Organization. There are other people here that, 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 that know about structures and organization and you like those things. And there are others who care less about those things perhaps than they should. Um, there is order that, that, that God desires out of, out of the church. Yes, He wants us to be free. Yes, He wants us to, to, um, to, to thrive and to flourish and, and to be who we are in Christ. But there's structure for things to hold together, for things to work carefully. Some of you are uh, into to, to carpentry. You, you, you have to have a plan if you're going to affect whatever it is that you're making. We've been laying the, 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 the floor. I say we, I do not mean me, nor most people. Our brother Israel primarily has been laying the floor. And it, it, it's coming along. It, it looks tighter than I've ever seen it, smoother than I've ever seen it. And um, we'll, we'll get there with some of the, the finishing touches. But 
you, you, you have to, to know the plan. You have to see how those, those things fit together. And so when I was down one day and was, was laying it, they said, no, that, 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 to my eye, that piece of parquet wood flooring looked the same as the other one, but it was too short. Throw it over on that pile. Or this one, oh, but it was too long. Throw it on that pile. Why? Because there's a plan and you understand the plan. If you don't have a plan, you end up with just a pile of loose parquet wood flooring and concrete dirty underfloor. So, so God has uh, a, a design and He's ingrained that within us, uh, a, a plan for the church and a design for the church, a structure for the church. And the apostles are seeking to affect that in a practical, common sense way. We are going to devote ourselves to preaching because God's blessing that. When we preach, the church grows. When we, when we go out and proclaim Christ, the church grows. And, and the church is fed. And they're, 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 they're not only added to in number, but they're changing. But we have to have time and space to devote ourselves to that. We cannot devote ourselves to that fully and to this. You have to... All, you know, let's go circa 15,000 of you have to make up your mind, what do you want? Do you want preaching and vision and teaching and, 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 and that sort of thing? Or do you want food, tables laid and served? If it's on us, if it's on the 12, we can only do one or the other. We can't do both. We're being stretched too thin. It's a very helpful thing for them to communicate. It is not right. And that's why I, I, I say while this is narrative, there are aspects of it which are normative because when the apostles say something is not right, that's a principle, isn't it? It is not right is an objective statement. It is apostolic teaching. It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. So they draw clear categories. They say that, that you should appoint from among yourselves people to that task so that we can devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. The lines are clearly drawn. The structure is there. The plan is laid out so everyone knows what they ought to be doing. Four, uh, qualifying characteristics. When they are picking out for themselves people for this task, can they just choose anyone? Okay, so if it's a matter of we need someone to boil the water for after-service tea. I can ask anyone. I don't, there are some churches that would say, actually, we, we, you know, unless you are a member here, you cannot do that. I disagree. It's boiling water. <laughs> anyone can do that. And if we need help, I'll be back there in the kitchen talking with them about the gospel, talking about Christ, talking with them about healthy church life while they fill the kettle. I've done it many times. It can be a mechanism for discipleship. But if we're talking about consistent, giving someone a regular task, saying they are the teas and coffees person, that's different, isn't it? It's the teas and coffees person who gives the random, uh, uh, you know, a kettle and says, oh, can you help me fill that, right? But if someone is assigned a regular consistent task, one that requires them exercising some modicum of authority, really that should be people who know Jesus Christ. This is a church after all. It only makes sense, doesn't it? That's not far-fetched. Preferably, it would be someone who has been baptized as a follower of Jesus and is committed to the fellowship of believers in the local church. Or am I wrong? I mean, I'm willing for someone to dispute that. 
but I don't think that you can come up with a logical reason why. Who should lead the way in serving in the church, if not members of the church? Who should lead the way in serving followers of Christ, if not followers of Christ? Why then have I observed sometimes, not just non-members, but even non-Christians, sometimes being more present and more hands-on with the practical things? That's not the way it should be. Trust me, I've had many volunteers um, from, from the, the uh, community to, to get involved with our, uh, our, our food bank thing. The way we do it, we don't need loads of volunteers. But those are people who are sort of tripping over themselves to find something to help with. But I've had to go and ask people in the church, why is that? That's not the way it should be. We, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, need to be the ones tripping over ourselves to exert ourselves at a practical level to the service of the local church and the community. That's hardly controversial. It's simply biblical structures within the life of the church. Now, how can I call on someone to do something practical when, frankly, they have a toxic reputation or they, they have a bad attitude or there are questions about whether they really are full of the Holy Spirit, whether really they are born again of the Holy Spirit of God. And certainly, wisdom. I cannot ask someone, nor can Charles, nor can Michael, or anyone else who's in the structure of the church as it is, ask someone with a bad reputation to do anything. Just a bad reputation outside, but maybe there's some unresolved issue within the church. Can't do it. Sorry. That has to be resolved first. Are there questions about someone's spiritual state? That person needs to be sat being discipled. So people doing practical tasks, you're freeing me up to spend time investing in that person so that they can eventually get to the point where we say, ah, they're of good repute and they're full of, wis uh, full of the Holy Spirit. Also full of wisdom. You see that there. In the text, verse 3, choose from yourself seven, perfect sort of number of good men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. These are the qualifying characteristics of deacons. And where does that take them? Well, having seen the context, having understood the complaint, having identified clear categories, having outlined qualifying characteristics, finally we get to congregational calling. The apostles say, pick out from among you, right? And, and, and pick out from among who? Well, they gathered the full gathering. Pick out from among the full gathering, from among you, these seven men who fit these qualifications. And then we're told that this pleased the whole gathering. At the beginning of verse 5. So the, the church is agreed. It pleases the whole gathering, so we are told they chose. Suitable deacons are people who are identifiable by the congregation. They pick out the deacons themselves, who are present and active in the congregational life of the church. Pick out from among you, he says and who are capable of letting the leadership get on with their primary ministry of prayer and preaching. Pick out from among you so that we can devote ourselves to the ministry of the Word and prayer. Does all that fit together? It's very clear in the text. So the congregational calling produces seven men full, you can guarantee it, of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, 
read those names. Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus. Nicolaus is a proselyte of Antioch. But if you look at the names, they are different from the other names that have sort of preceded um, a church life in the Gospels and the rest of Acts. They are Greek names. These are not Hebrews. These are Hellenists. The church... the, 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 the Leaders, yes, and the church take so seriously the complaint of the Hellenist widows that they intentionally seek out representative men of Hellenistic background and language who can effectively minister to those who have been marginalized within the life of the church. It's beautiful, it's simple, but it's also genius. There's no chance that the Hellenists are going to get neglected now. The Hellenist widows aren't going to be able to say to the, the, the Hellenist men in their number, we're still being neglected. Unless those men really are not doing their jobs. But these are men full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom with good rep reputation. They'll do their job. And much more besides. They set them before the apostles, and the apostles prayed and laid their hands on them. A couple of things I want to clarify. One, I'm not an apostle. Charles is not an apostle. Elders and overseers are not apostles. We do not have apostolic authority of the caliber that the twelve had, nor indeed those others to whom Jesus appeared in the days of the early church, who were also called apostles. We simply don't. Throughout Christian history, there have been others who have been called apostles. It was fairly common, in fact, among even Reformed and particular Baptist churches, to speak of people as apostles. Lowercase a. They didn't have some special garb, carry some special mantle. They didn't hype themselves up. They did not call themselves apostles. Rather, they were identified very specifically by their churches as evangelists to be sent out to proclaim the gospel. That was the beginning and the end of their apostolic ministry. They went where the gospel hadn't been preached, and they preached Christ. That's it. Apostle means called and sent out ones. And they were called to the evangelistic task and sent out and planted churches. We can talk church history later if that's of interest to you. In that sense, someone else down in the reaches of time may look back at some of us and say they were apostles if we went out and preached Christ where He had not been proclaimed. We'll let them do that. We will let history tell that story. I'm simply a pastor, an overseer, an elder. There is a, a Charles is simply an elder. At one level, we must make that distinction clear. Because some pastors have used this passage in an exploitative way to prevent themselves, to keep themselves from getting their hands dirty when they needed to. We are hardly a church of 15,000 people. There are practical tasks that I have done, and I dare say I will likely continue to do impulsively and spontaneously as the situation arises. But we have an opportunity to lay some better foundations for church growth. Where indeed I and others who are appointed as elders are able to get on with preaching, teaching, evangelism, discipleship, spiritual counsel, and oversight, and others are able to tend to the practical issues that we may come up with. I shouldn't have to be organizing the after-service barbecue at the end of the month. Someone else should be doing that. I shouldn't be the one saying, let's put the tables up here and set up the chairs this way. Someone else should be doing that. 
by God's grace, I'm not the one um, managing the uh, overhead projector or the sound system. That would be an impossibility. I can't be two places at once, teleporting back and forth between the sound and the, the live stream and the pulpit. Thank God He's raised up people to, to, to take various tasks on, our, our, our food bank and all of that. People are stepping up to serve in practical ways. It's not as dire as maybe some might be feeling or, or, or thinking. But I want to be very clear to challenge you this morning. We need deacons. And not only do we need deacons, we need our deacons to be deacons. And God helping them, they will. And what is the result of that? At the end of Acts chapter 6, what do we see? Anyone? The Word of God continued to increase. Why? Because the people who were going to have to be serving tables weren't. Other men were sorting that out. And they were out proclaiming the Word of God. And do you know what? In the, the amazing providence of God, when the load is evenly spread and nicely spread, it wasn't just the apostles who were preaching the Word of God. As we'll see next week, deacons were also the preeminent evangelists in the early church. Jesus Christ will be honored in this place. He has been, He is, and He will be. But we must examine ourselves. We must search the Scriptures. And we must set our house in order. All of that is not a distraction from the Gospel. But it is to facilitate the proclamation of the Gospel. That He who was equal to God, didn't, and did not count it robbery to be equal with God, but was in fact equal with God, sharing glory with Him before the ages began, humbled Himself, emptied Himself, and was made in the form of a servant. And if anyone thinks, oh, this diaconal task, it seems very, you know, everyone wants to preach, you know, but why? You're talking about servants. Deacon means servant. Jesus was a servant. You're following Christ when you're a deacon. You're like Christ when you're a deacon. In fact, I want this church to be filled with people who have the office of deacon or deaconess and don't have the office but could be appointed to it if the church wanted to. People of good repute, filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who are following Jesus in service. You don't have to have a title or an office to serve. So let's commit ourselves to being more like Christ. And as we do, we'll grow because the gospel will go out. Let's, let's pray. Father, we need your grace. We need your help. There's no time like the present to, um, to, to set our house in order. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us as we approach this with sobriety. We have to look at ourselves. We have to say painful things, ask painful questions, um, examine ourselves with raw honesty. But we thank you for your grace because while it's not quite like what we see in the book of Acts, we are growing in number. I pray that it would be true of us that as the disciples increase in this place, that before we get to any complaints, there will be faithful people filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom of good reputation who are appointed to diligently serve. And may those of us tasked with preaching and vision and oversight in the church excel therein. In Jesus' name, amen.